We are continuing a Bible study that we began last week entitled Preaching to Greeks. And I'll give a little bit of background, but if you missed last week, you can access the first part of this either on our website or through mixlr.com, New Life Ministries. And I want to go through the opening scriptures again in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 17, to sort of give us the background, and then we're going to go into some new material tonight. 1 Corinthians 1, from verse 17 down to verse 24. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we saw last week that from verse 23, Paul seems to make a clear distinction between the way in which Jews receive and respond to the message of Christ and the cross and the way Greeks receive it and respond to it. He says to the Jews, the message of Christ and the cross is a stumbling block, but to the Greeks, it's foolishness. And the Jews seek for a sign, but Greeks seek for wisdom. And in the original language, which I think most of us know for the New Testament is actually Greek, the word that Paul uses in verses 22 and 23 your Bible may translate it as Gentiles, but in the Greek, it is literally the Greek word Helen, from which we get words like Hellenistic, which refers to the Greek culture or Greek art. So there's some major distinction being made here between Jews and the Greeks. And we, we looked last week at two different models in the book of Acts. One we looked at in Acts chapter 2 was Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching in Jerusalem to an audience that was primarily Jewish. And then we began to contrast that with, Greek, with the Greeks in Athens that Paul preached to in Acts chapter 17. And there's a totally different audience 
in each case. And I want to express once again, we don't change the message of the gospel. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Revelation 14 calls it the eternal gospel. So we're not talking about changing the gospel to suit a particular audience or group of people. However, I think God's wisdom teaches us that we need to know our audience. We need to know who it is that we're preaching to and sort of get inside their head and understand what their mindset is so we know how to present the truth of the gospel to them. And again, in Acts 2, which has often been used by the church as a model for evangelism and preaching, uh, I would maintain that that model no longer works in a place like the U.S., which has become more and more like a Greek culture, secularized, atheistic, without any kind of biblical foundation in many cases. And in Acts 2, Peter didn't have to give a long explanation of who God is and prove to them that the scriptures were the, the very word of God and that he had authority to quote those scriptures and give proof that God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't have to do any of that. Matter of fact, in the opening line of his sermon, he begins to quote from the prophet Joel, then he quotes from the Psalms, and he, with great liberty, he uses the word of God knowing that his Jewish audience already understood that there is a God, he created the heavens and the earth, and he revealed himself through the prophets and through scriptures which have been clearly written down and recorded. So preaching to a Jew Jewish audience is one thing, but when we came to Acts chapter 17 and we saw Paul preaching to a whole different kind of an audience, we saw his approach was also very different. And if you'll turn again now to Acts 17, and the passage begins in verse 16 of Acts 17. I'm going to skip over some of this, but just to refresh our memories. We learn in verse 16 that Paul has now come to Athens, Athens, Greece. And it says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So the very first thing we note here, very different from what Peter was seeing in Jerusalem. This is a place full of idolatry, statues and altars and all kinds of gods being worshipped in Greece. And it says in verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And you'll remember in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul emphasized several times that the Greeks love wisdom. 
They prided themselves on their philosophers and their great wealth of wisdom. And so, by no coincidence, in verse 18, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 18, Paul finds himself confronted by Greek philosophers. It says, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Remember, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 1 that the message of Christ, the message of the cross, is going to sound like foolishness to Greeks. And here's a clear confirmation of that. Paul speaking to them sounded like babbling. What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, you have to understand something. The Greeks didn't have any problem with gods. They had plenty of them. You may have even studied about Greek mythology. They had a god for everything. And so they were quite fascinated with the fact that maybe Paul was introducing them to a new god that they could add to their list. So he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. And so they bring him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill, and they want to learn more. They want to hear more about these new and strange things that Paul is talking about. And in verse 22, Paul stands up, and he begins his speech. And I want to read from verse 22 here. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, let me remind you that in Acts 2, uh, Peter's message was totally different from this. He goes right into the prophet Joel, quoting many, many lines of Scripture to explain what was happening there on the day of Pentecost. From there, he goes right into the book of Psalms and quotes other verses. And eventually, he ends up in the same place, preaching Christ and his resurrection. But I want to draw your attention to a couple, a couple of stark uh, differences between these two models of evangelism. Never once in Paul's speech does he directly quote a verse of Scripture. <laughs> On the other hand, he does give a direct quote from one of the Grecian poets. In verse 28, he, he says, Some of your own poets have said, and then he quotes, For we are also his offspring. So, a very different approach. And the results were quite different, too. In Acts 2, after Peter's message, we're told that they were cut to the heart. They were all convicted. And they came running up to him and saying, What must we do to be saved? And he told them, Repent and believe and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people repented and were saved in that one day. Quite a different response here. We read at the end of the chapter, some of the people were sneering and mocking, and a few people became followers. And there are some other interesting differences that I want to point out here. And going back to verse 16 for just a moment, Paul was grieved, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. That's a strong statement. Given over to idols. They didn't just have a statue or two. The spirit of idolatry had taken control of this whole city. And we notice in verse 18, the prominence of philosophers. It mentions two of the main groups of philosophers at that period of time in Greece, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. I did a little bit of research on this. The Epicureans, you may have even heard that word used before, their basic belief was one of an atheistic 
evolutionary kind of a philosophy. And you may think that evolution didn't come about until the 1800s through Charles Darwin, but quite the contrary, the Greeks really were the first ones to uh, give a very clear explanation of an atheistic evolutionary explanation of the origin of the universe and the origin of man and all the other living things. So the Epicureans were basically atheists, they were evolutionists, and they believed in the god of pleasure. Their, their chief aim was to indulge in every kind of lust and pleasure. And if you will, the god they were serving was really the god of lust and pleasure. Uh, they did not believe in a creator god. They conveniently invented these myths of evolution so that they didn't have to think about God, didn't have to worry about God, and they could give free reign to their lusts and their pursuit of pleasure. The Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, were at the other end of the spectrum. They were very strict, kind of like the Jewish Pharisees, very self-righteous. They prided themselves on their superior virtue and uprightness and morality. And while the Epicureans were busy indulging in every kind of pleasure, they were denying themselves pleasures and priding themselves on how righteous and how, in some strange sense, spiritual they were. And so, these are the two predominant philosophies in the culture that Paul's preaching to. And, as I already mentioned, when they heard him talk, they thought he was a babbler. With all of their wisdom, what Paul was saying to them sounded like foolishness. And that's exactly what we read in 1 Corinthians 1. And God there specifically declares... He's going to make all the wisdom of the world foolishness. And he's going to destroy all these philosophies and myths of man with the very wisdom of God, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there's something else very interesting I want to point out here. Uh, in verse 22, when Paul starts to address them, he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Your Bible may read superstitious, which is probably a little better translation of the word. Um, this is a huge, big, long Greek word, which I'm going to try to pronounce. I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, but it's Dicedimonesteros. Don't even ask me to spell it. But one of the root words in the word is daimon, which is the Greek word for demon or a supernatural spirit. 
And the other part of the word is a root word which means to dread or to fear or to be faithless. So putting all that together, um, I think the best translation is the one the King James originally gave. I perceive that you're very superstitious. They believed in all kinds of supernatural spirits and demons, and they feared a lot of these gods. If you know anything about Greek mythology, they were afraid of these gods. And a lot of their so-called worship was trying to appease these gods so that they wouldn't do them any harm. So that's sort of the backdrop for the culture and the mindset that Paul is trying to present the good news of the gospel to. They had all sorts of superstitions, all sorts of strange ideas about supernatural beings, and going back for a second to the two basic philosophies, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophies, this Epicurean philosophy, this atheistic, evolutionary kind of a philosophy that pervaded the culture in Greece, I, I can't think of a better description for the culture that we are confronting here in the United States now. And many of you have heard me speak on this a lot in recent weeks because it's something that I believe is very, very serious. This is a, is a strong idol that has a strong hold, grip, on our society and on our culture. And sadly, it has made major inroads into the church and into seminaries and even into Bible schools and Bible colleges. And I did some research just before I came online tonight, and you may have heard me refer to this, but here's some more recent information. Uh, last month, February 7th, 8th, and 9th, was declared to be Evolution Weekend. It was the ninth annual celebration of Evolution Weekend, which happens to coincide with the birth date of Charles Darwin, the one who wrote Origin of Species in 1859 that has largely uh, promoted evolution in our modern times. Okay, so what? This Evolution Weekend, uh, it started off being called Evolution Sunday, and it was an event primarily promoted in churches across the U.S. And it continues to be uh, a major event in churches, but they've now even expanded it to include Jewish synagogues, and that's why they now call it Evolution Weekend. And if you go to this website, I forget the name of the website, but if you look up Evolution Weekend 2014, it'll take you right there. And you'll find that there were almost 13,000 signatures from clergy 
pastors, preachers, and ministers across the United States who signed on to their clergy letter stating and declaring that as clergymen or women, they believe in evolution. And this past month, there were over 605 congregations across the United States that participated in this evolution weekend. And in addition, there were over 500 rabbis that signed on to their rabbi letter declaring that they believe in evolution. So this is not a small thing, and it is, it is greatly undermining the authority of Scripture in the churches, because as I've been pointing out, if Genesis 1-1 is not literally true, and if the whole first chapter of Genesis is not literally true, that in six days... God created everything. He didn't need the help of natural selection or evolution or chance or anything else. He supernaturally created the universe in six literal days. If Genesis 1 isn't true, then how can I believe anything else in the Bible? And the devil knows that. And that's why he has attacked the the very foundation of the whole Bible, which is Genesis 1. And that leads me into my next thought. The very first thing Paul does as he's speaking to these Greeks who were worshiping an unknown God was to declare to them that God is the creator. Now, Peter didn't need to do that on the day of Pentecost. He was speaking to a Jewish audience. They all believed in God. They all knew Genesis 1. It was part of their Torah. They all worshipped the God of creation. They just didn't know that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was the true one, declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. So, in Acts 17, verse 23, as Paul begins his message, he says, As I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, remember, they were religious, they were supernatural, they had all kinds of idols, they worshipped all sorts of gods. He said, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Wow. I can think of no better inscription to write over the United States of America, to the unknown God. And the the nation that once knew God, God was taught in the schools. The majority of kids went to Sunday school. They learned the Bible. They learned the Ten Commandments. They heard about Jesus from early childhood. Um... We're deceived if we think that's the culture in the U.S. now. We're dealing with a whole generation that's never even stepped foot in a church. They don't know anything about Genesis. They've never even heard about God the Creator. Because from kindergarten, they've seen little pictures of monkeys becoming men 
and they've been taught over and over and over in their science classes the whole myth and the lie of evolution. So, just as Paul did here, we need to realize our audience, by and large, they don't know God. They don't even know the first basic foundation about God, that he's the maker of heaven and earth. So in Acts 17.24, God is proclaimed to them by Paul. God who made the world and everything in it. God who made the world and everything in it. You know, it, it really saddens me when I see how far the culture in a nation like the United States has moved away from where it was even 30 or 40 years ago. I've been preaching the gospel for 40 years. And let me tell you something. This message that I'm sharing is the product of many, many weeks and weeks of prayer and and asking God, Lord, how do we reach this culture now. It's not like preaching 30 or 40 years ago. It's a very different environment. And I believe God is giving some insight into not how we need to change the message, but how we need to understand the spiritual culture that we are now in so we can present the gospel to them in a way that they can understand and hopefully some of them will respond. Now remember, when Paul began to speak to this group, uh, he thought he was a babbler. It all sounded like foolishness to them. And I dare say, a lot of what we're speaking tonight will sound like foolishness to the culture that we're in now. And whereas 30, 40 years ago, we were widely known to be a Judeo-Christian nation that worshipped one God, that's not the case now. We are very much more like the Greece that Paul found himself in, where they worshipped a, a whole multiplicity of gods. All kinds of gods were worshipped in Greece. And I want to read to you a quote from an article that was in the April 2009 Newsweek magazine. It was actually the cover article of the magazine, and you may even remember the title and the cover. It was quite striking. The title of the article is, The Decline and Fall of Christian America. The Decline and Fall of Christian America. This is the cover story of a Newsweek, 2009. And this one statement, I think, really hits the nail on the head of what they were trying to say in this article. And I'm quoting, The present, in this sense, is less about the death of God and more about the birth of many gods. Let me repeat that last part. It's less about the death of God and more about the birth of many gods. 
We're now living in a culture where many gods are worshipped. And President Obama, in his book, The Audacity of Hope, uh, there's a famous line there which he repeated in his inaugural address, and I believe he's repeated this in several other speeches since then, and this is definitely a major part of his philosophy and his view on the kind of change he wants to bring about in America, and I'm quoting, Whatever we once were, we are no longer. We are no longer just a Christian nation. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. I would agree, we are no longer what we once were. We were once a Judeo-Christian, theistic culture that worshipped one God, the God of the Bible, the God who created heaven and earth. We are now a, a nation of many gods, Hindu gods, Muslim gods, Buddhist gods, and if you pay any attention to the news, the atheists are organizing and becoming a very strong force in America. And they're coming against every vestige of Christianity now. They want every cross torn down in the land. And they, they cannot stomach the idea that we're one nation under God. And so... The city of Athens, it was full of idolatry, all sorts of occult and demonic activity, I think is very representative of the kind of culture that we find ourselves in now, and the, the theme of their whole culture and ours to the unknown God. Now, the first thing that Paul did, we saw back in verse 17, it says he first went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. He reasoned. I like that word. You know, a lot of Christians are afraid to reason. They think that if you're a believer... You just have to kind of shut your brain off and blindly accept the Bible, even though you know that it's not reasonable and it's not logical and it's not scientific. Nothing could be further from the truth. And let me tell you my own testimony. I was first a scientist before I became a preacher. And as a scientist, logical, analytical mind... The more I studied math and science and astronomy and biology, the more I was convinced this could not have possibly all come about by evolutionary random chance forces. And it was one of the major things that led me to a place where I was ready to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after 40 years of studying the Bible 
and I continue to love and study science, I find nothing at all unreasonable about my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that God made the heavens and the earth. I believe in the the whole story of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. I believe, and there's much scientific evidence to back it up, that there was a worldwide flood, just as what's described in Genesis 6 through 9. And we need to know how to reason our faith with people. And we can't just say, oh, well, believe the Bible, uh, we'll figure it out one day. That's not going to be sufficient in our day and age. And if we're in a Greek kind of a culture that prides itself on its wisdom, <clears throat> its advanced learning, its intellectual abilities, we need to know how to speak to this culture. And I want to quote to you a scripture that's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And I'm going to read from the Amplified Version. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Peter says, But in your hearts set Christ apart as holy, and acknowledge Him as Lord. And here's the part I want to highlight. Always be ready to give a logical defense. Let me read that again. Always be ready to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you to account for the hope that is in you, but do it courteously and respectfully. And this is something um, that's really been speaking to me, and I believe in coming weeks we're going to be doing a lot more along these lines of equipping believers to be able to do just this, to give a logical defense of the scriptures and of the gospel. The Greek word there is the Greek word apologia, and we get the word apologetics. And we're not making any apologies for the word of God. It really does mean more like we just read here, to be able to give a defense of the truth. Every believer should be equipped and should be ready to give a logical, reasonable explanation and defense of why they believe in the Bible, why they believe in Jesus, and why it's perfectly in harmony with everything science and math and history has to say to us. Now, in verse 24 again, the very first thing Paul does in proclaiming God to these people who did not know God was to proclaim Him as Creator. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth. And I pointed out last week, because God made everything, that gives Him the right and the authority to be the Lord of it. God is Lord of heaven and earth because He made heaven and earth. And 
whether the atheists or the Buddhists or the Hindus or whoever wants to reject God as their Lord for right now, one day the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the reason he is Lord is he has authority to be Lord. He made everything, and therefore he's the owner, he's the possessor of it, and he can do with it whatever he wants. And so God the Creator and God the Lord is the first thing that Paul proclaims and declares to this Greek audience. The very next thing he explains to them, and it ties right along with that, that he is the source of all life. Verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So God is the Creator, God is the Lord, and God is the author, the source of all life. You know, my first question to an evolutionist or anyone who claims that belief in God as a creator is foolishness or babbling, my first question to them is explain to me the origin of life. Not complicated. Where did life originate? They have no answer. They have no scientific proof whatsoever that they know where life came from. Because they weren't there to observe it. Neither were we. But we have a historical account by the one who authored life. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he proceeds to document in Genesis 1 how he created the plants, he created the animals, and then ultimately and most importantly, he made man in his own image and likeness. If our culture is anything like this Greek culture, and I'm convinced it is, we can't assume that the people we're presenting Christ to have this as a background. We can't assume that. We have to walk them step by step through Genesis 1. God is the creator. God is the author of life. God made man differently from the monkeys and all the other animals. He's made in God's image and likeness. And we have to challenge people to examine the facts. Now, you don't have to be a scientist, but there are some simple facts that we can learn to be ready, like Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, to be ready to give a logical defense, a logical explanation for why we believe that God created all things. And if you look in Romans chapter 1 for a minute, Romans chapter 1, Paul is telling the Romans here that he's very eager, he's very anxious to preach the gospel to them. But before he can do that, he has to lay some groundwork. 
And so basically, the second half of Romans 1 and all of chapter 2 and uh, the better part of chapter 3, he presents to them, first of all, the bad news before he even hints at any good news. And he starts right off here in verse 18, and we often skip over all of this, and we think we can go up to someone from this Greek kind of a culture and say, hey, uh, Jesus loves you, why don't you ask him into your heart? And they're going to look at you like, what planet are you from? Because we have to understand their mindset. And these verses in Romans 1, I think, give us tremendous insight into the mindset, the worldview of our culture today. Paul writes in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's a key term, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice it does not say they don't know the truth. Quite the contrary, they know it, that's implied, but they suppress it. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God, remember, we're preaching to a Greek culture who worships the unknown God, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Notice that. What may be known of God is manifest in them. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. When he made man in his own image and likeness, he stamped that very knowledge on his spirit, that there is an eternity, there is an eternal God, there is a creator. Every man, woman, and child has that knowledge within them. And what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Very often we hear, you know, the atheist or the agnostic cry, well, if God would show himself, maybe I would believe in him. Uh, no. God has shown himself. He's made himself manifest in you. Already done it. And then in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So, the very truth of God the Creator is foundational to us being able to present the gospel to anyone. And we have to start here, at this point, of appealing to their conscience, appealing to this knowledge that God has already made manifest inside them, and then appealing to the knowledge they already have from looking at the creation around them. It says it's clearly seen being understood 
by the things that are made. However, notice again the importance of that phrase in verse 18, they suppress the truth. And then in verse 21, Paul says something very profound. Although they knew God, past tense, they knew God. These are not atheists. They knew God. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, remember, the Greeks are famous for their wisdom, professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, an idol, made like corruptible man, and birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. And if you follow through the rest of this chapter, it talks about how they keep suppressing this truth, they keep hardening their hearts, and God keeps turning them further and further into their darkness and in their folly. And finally, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 8, in, I'm sorry, in verse 28, he says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. That's important. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. What I find about atheists and evolutionists, they're not so much interested in the science or the math. They just don't want God. They want to find some explanation to get rid of God from their lives. They do not like to retain God in their knowledge. And he goes a little further in verse 30 to say they will eventually become haters of God as God gives them over to a reprobate, debased mind. They just spiral further and further downward into darkness, into foolishness, thinking that they're wise, but becoming more and more foolish in their darkness. So, this is a very difficult task that we have to preach to someone who's in this spiritual condition. They've already made a conscious, willful decision to suppress the truth. They don't like God. They don't want the truth of God. They would rather worship at the altar of evolution. They would rather make some god of their own, and then they can sin and do whatever they want and not, to, not have to give an account to God. Now, quickly, back to Acts chapter 17. In... In verse 26, Paul goes on and says something also very important, and he was no doubt <clears throat> thinking in terms of the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings or the book of origins, and he reminds these Greeks of their origin. He says in verse 26, 
God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. It's a very clear yet indirect reference to Genesis 1. And if, if you know Genesis 1 and the following chapters, the entire human race, there aren't races, there's one race. The human race came from one man. It came from Adam. And Genesis 1 tells us very clearly that from Adam, God brought forth woman or Eve. And Genesis is very clear about this. Eve would be the mother of all living. She would be the mother of all living. So this is in perfect harmony with Genesis 1. Every human being comes from the same mother and the same father, Adam and Eve. We all share that same lineage. And by implication... And Paul doesn't go into a big, heavy theological thing here like he does in the book of Romans, because in Romans he's writing to Christians. But he implies that because we're all related to Adam and Eve, their sin has been inherited by all of us. And let me quickly take you to Romans 5 just to show you what I think Paul had in his mind when he was telling them, you have all come from one man, from one blood. You all have the same origin and the same inheritance. We've all inherited two things from Adam and Eve, as Paul explains so gloriously here in Romans 5. We inherited their sin and we inherited their death. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And you can read the rest of Romans 5, but that's enough. We inherited two things from Adam and Eve. We inherited sin, and we inherited death. And because of that, going now back to Acts 17, because of that, Paul now begins to come around to his real message. He's taught them that God is the Creator. He's taught them that God is rightfully the Lord of heaven and earth. He's taught them that God is the author of life. Now he's gotten more specific. He's talked about the origin of mankind. We've all come from one ancestral family, Adam and Eve. And then he, he actually never even mentions here the word sin. It's implied but he does tell them they all need to repent. And 
because of our relation to Adam and Eve, because we're all sinners, he then explains in verse 30, Acts 17.30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. And he's talking about their sins, their idolatry, all the stuff they had been doing, worshiping an unknown God. Really, what I hear Paul saying is, God is a merciful God. He's overlooked all of that up until now. But, no more. Be careful here. He's overlooked all of your ignorance up until now. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Their ignorance was pardoned. One Bible says God winked at it. Kind of like he looked the other way. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But now, Paul tells them there are several things you need to do. Number one, backing up to verse 28 for a second, you need to seek for God. I'm sorry, verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. What a wonderful thought. God's not far from you. Seek Him. Cry out for God. Even if you're crawling around in the darkness groping for Him, you're going to find Him. Because He's not that far from you. And then, coming back to verse 30 again, His real message, the first words out of Jesus' mouth when He began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. Repent means to turn. A change of heart. A change of attitude. you got to get rid of your idols. you got to stop sinning. you got to turn away from all these lies and myths and false gods that you've been worshiping. Now you need to repent. And he gives the reason why in verse 31. God commands all men everywhere to repent because there is a judgment day coming. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Brothers and sisters, we don't like to talk about judgment. We want to make it seeker-friendly. We don't want to talk about judgment or hell or giving an account of anything to God. But that's the central part of the message. God is commanding everyone to repent of their sins because he's both creator, he's Lord, and he's also judge. And he's going to explain to us what gives him the right to judge the world. Let me read this all again. He now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, by the man whom he has ordained. 
He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. What is Paul saying to these Greeks? God is your creator. You're related to Adam and Eve. You're all sinners. Just like I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. And we need to repent because there's a day coming which God the Lord and God the judge has already set on his calendar where he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And actually, uh, if you study John chapter 5, the judge is going to be Jesus Christ. The judge will be Jesus because he has all authority now to judge mankind because he became one of us. And he laid down his life. He bore all of our shame, all of our sin, all of our punishment. He took our curse. He took our death on the cross. And to prove that he can be trusted as Savior, God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was preached by Peter in Acts 2. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is preached again in Acts 17 to the Greeks. We can't leave these things out of the message. Repent, because there's a day of judgment coming, and you can trust in Jesus to pardon your sins, because he died on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. And let me try to finish this in about five more minutes. Bear with me. In verse... Let me find the scripture again here. Okay, in verse 31, He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, whom He has ordained. He has given assurance. Some translations, I know the NIV and the New American Standard, translate that word proof. He has given proof of this by raising Him from the dead. You know, a lot of people say, If God would just give us some proof, I would believe. He has, my friend. He has given plenty of proof. And this is one thing I'm going to be studying and teaching on more in coming weeks. We need to be able to give a logical defense of why it is reasonable to believe in the Bible, believe in the gospel, and to believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen on the third day. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read, this is after Jesus' resurrection, it says, He appeared to the apostles, to whom He presented Himself alive, after His suffering, by many infallible proofs, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He appeared to them on a number of occasions after his resurrection, giving them proof after proof after proof, many infallible proofs 
that he was indeed the Son of God, crucified, dead, buried, and risen from the dead, they watched him ascend back into heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Paul tells us that in addition to the original apostles, over 500, not 5, not 50, 500 eyewitnesses, first-hand eyewitnesses, saw Jesus alive after his dead body was taken down from the cross. Hallelujah! He is risen from the dead. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. And we need to boldly proclaim this to Jews, to Greeks, and to Americans, that God is the creator of heaven and earth, he's the maker of mankind, we were made in the image and likeness of God, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, we have sinned against God, and we inherited the sin and the death that came because of that sin. And God is now commanding us to repent, to run to the cross, to receive Jesus Christ as our one and only Savior and salvation. Now, to finish this up, I wish this story ended the same way Acts chapter 2 ends, with 3,000 people coming under heavy conviction and saying, what do we need to do? And they repent, and they take baptism, and they become followers of Christ. Sadly, that's not what happened here in Greece. And in verse 32, after Paul goes through all of this message, we read, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. My Bible, the NIV, it says they sneered. They were laughing. This was all a joke to them. They mocked the resurrection of the dead. I don't know if you've seen the movie Son of God. Uh, I finally saw it the other night. Uh, Very nicely done. And as I was watching... The, the scene of Christ suffering, being whipped, and carrying the cross, and finally hanging on the cross, and seeing their absolute hatred for this man, and what he was doing for them the whole while, they were hating him, and beating him, and crucifying, crucifying him, and understanding that very soon, Jesus will not be the Lamb of God crucified on the cross to them. He will be their judge. And if they do not repent, and if they do not believe in the gospel, it's a terrifying thing. And we see here, they're mocking at the message of the resurrection, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. In other words, they weren't quite convinced yet, but at least they were open. They wanted to hear more from Paul. And verse 33 says, So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, a woman named Damaris, 
and a few others. Quite different from the Acts 2 response to the gospel. Um, I hate to point this out, but Paul departed. He did not start a church in Athens. He moved on to Corinth, and there was a much better response to the gospel there. And let me summarize this very quickly uh, with just a couple of points. Number one, we are all called to preach Christ and to preach the good news to all the nations, all nations, to all kinds of people, all cultures, including the United States, including atheists, agnostics, evolutionists, idol worshipers, or whatever. We're called to preach the gospel to all creation. But, as we've been seeing throughout this Bible study, we must know the spiritual condition of those that we're preaching to. We need to know their mindset so we know how to present the gospel to them. We cannot assume now, especially young people, we cannot assume that they already have a biblical framework. They may not even know what the Bible is. They may have never heard or read Genesis chapter 1. So we have to teach them these basic foundations. God the Creator, man's origin, man's fall. Where did sin come from? Where did death come from? Why do we have suffering in the world today? All these things are explained in the Bible, but we can't assume that they already know those things. And I believe that our culture has become much, much more like the Greek culture that Paul found himself preaching to in Athens. Secular, evolutionary, atheistic, idolatrous, worshiping many gods, the Muslim gods, the Buddhist gods, whatever gods you want. We are called to preach Christ's death, his resurrection, and we cannot leave out of that message the coming day of judgment and God's call to everyone to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And finally, we must encourage anyone and everyone, as Paul did in his message, if they're at all sincere, to seek God. Even if you're not sure, but you have questions or you want to hear some more, seek God. Search out the facts. And I am completely convinced that anyone who sincerely searches for truth will find it. Jeremiah 29.13 states, If you search for me with your whole heart, you will find me. Let's pray tonight. Father, you've called us to be salt and light. You've called us to preach the gospel to all creation, to all the nations. And Lord, we see in many of the Western nations especially, like the United States and Europe, there's been a hardening. There's been a turning away from the true and the living God of the Bible. 
to all kinds of false gods and false cults and religions and all sorts of superstitions and demonic things. And Lord, there's a great challenge set before us to preach the gospel to these people. And God, I'm asking for an anointing. I'm asking for wisdom. I'm asking for you to equip us so that we can give a logical defense of the gospel to anyone and everyone to be able to explain to them logically and reasonably why we believe in the Bible, why we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, He is the coming judge, and He is the coming King. God, I pray for every listener to this Bible study that you would quicken them, you would equip them, you would stir their hearts, you would give them boldness to speak your word, and that you would use each one of us to reach this culture with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. For it's such a time as this that you've called us and appointed us. We give ourselves into your hands. We give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.